Hi, and welcome to Facts and Blog and Podcast. This, there's no, there's none of the music that you hear is, is actually happening. You add that stuff later? Yeah. Oh, this is going to be awkward. <laughs> no, the sound effects will be live. The brown vest was the standard uh, British uh, soldier's infantry uh, long arm from 1722 until uh, the 1820s. Uh, there were some, you know, obviously used well past that. And uh, there's even a report that there was one used at Shiloh during uh, the American Civil War in 1862. Uh, and there were about 4 million of them of all different types and patterns made in the uh, the hundred years that they that the gun saw service. We're going to be giving away one of the ultimate target stands here, um, as well as one of our new um, wild gear multi-can koozies. So Ooh, man. we shout out uh, to Pickle. You've heard a lot about Pickle. You're going to see some pictures of him here soon. Uh, <laughs> he messaged me on Facebook last night and said he was going to bring us in some barbecued goose. Nice. Uh, and sent the pictures of said uh, hunted goose. Yeah, um, you got a whole haul of, of gooses. A whole gander. He did uh, say that it was shot with steel and not lead. So if we do uh, bite down on something, we don't have to worry about lead poisoning, just a broken tooth. <laughs> just a broken tooth. Yeah. Thank you. So here is the... Pickle. It's going to be fun. So here are the rules. I'm just going to give you two names. One is the name of an obscure gun, the other of an obscure professional wrestler. And all you have to do is tell me which one you think is the gun. All right. So you ready? I'm ready. I think it goes without saying that uh, pretty much every gun owner has their favorite tools, their favorite things that they like to keep in their range bag or at their workbench. Uh, and it's no secret for us that the Wheeler Fat Wrench is one of those. We have several of these up in our assembly area with our armory technicians, and it's because it's a simple, great device uh, that can be used in multiple applications. It's an adjustable torque wrench in a screwdriver type fashion with a series of bits that'll help you with everything from rifle takedown to scope mounting and everything in between. Fantastic tool. Uh, so if you haven't checked these out, you could go to wheelertools.com and they're available in a ton of places, including amazon.com. But make sure you check it out, especially if you're looking for that one missing piece for your workbench or you want to give it to a uh, new gun owner to help set up their range bag. Definitely a great choice. Again, check out our friends at wheelertools.com and take a look at the fat wrench. Hi, and welcome to episode 38 of the Facts and Blog and Podcast. We're so excited that you decided to join us today. We have a very great show lined up for you. Special guest, Philip Schreier of the NRA Museum. He's one of the uh, senior curators for the NRA Firearms Museum, is going to be on with us in uh, the beginning of a series where we're walking through the history of American firearms. So we are starting with the Revolutionary War and some of the things that surround that. Uh, Philip has been with the NRA Museum for over 30 years uh, and has a wealth of information and knowledge and wonderful stories to share with us. So make sure you stick around for our main segment uh, to hear some of those insights and uh, gain some understanding about some of the uh, famous firearms uh, from the American Revolution. Also this week, we have a uh, new segment that we're trying out, a little facts and blog and podcast game show. We have uh, Ryan Brunn, our 
our shipping manager on with us. He's going to be playing uh, America's new favorite game. Is it a gun or an obscure pro wrestler? So we're going to quiz uh, Ryan's knowledge on either guns or pro wrestling, one of the two. And on Jay's World of Eats this week, we are dipping our toes into some wild game. Uh, we have some barbecued goose that was harvested uh, by our turning cell lead, Eric Storm. So we're going to be dealing that as well. We'll be giving away a Caldwell Ultimate Target Stand as well as a Faxon Multi-Can Koozie from our friends at Wild Gear. So make sure you stick around to get entered in all of those. We'll take a quick break to hear from our friends of the podcast and then we'll move on to our conversation with Philip from the NRA Firearms Museum. So you've heard it a million times before on tons of different forums and blogs and safety tips and tutorials that a clean gun is a safe gun. And uh, that's one of the reasons why we think you should look into our friends over at Tipton. Now you'll see some of their stuff popping up in our podcast in the coming weeks because we're going to be doing some cleaning episodes. How do you clean a pistol? How do you clean an AR? What are the types of things that you need to safety check on those items? And you'll see a lot of Tipton products coming up in those episodes as well. What I have with me right now is their uh, Tipton gun cleaning kit for pistols. This has really everything you need to get started with keeping up with your pistol, whether it's your EDC or your range gun or your competition gun. Uh, it really is an easy to store, take with you, throw in your bag and making sure that you are keeping up with all of the needs of your firearm. So obviously everything down from patches and brushes and rods, it's all right here, ready to go. But Tipton has tons of other stuff, including vices, solvents, and all the things you need to keep your guns safe. So make sure you check out our friends Tipton and check them out on the podcast as well. Well, as promised, Philip Schreier from the NRA Firearms Museum is with us. Uh, he is one of the senior curators and is, uh, has graciously uh, blessed us with some time to uh, take a stroll down the historic memory lane, as it were, to talk about some uh, historic Revolutionary War uh, firearms. So, Philip, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, it's my pleasure. Sincere pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, for sure. So if you wouldn't mind, just give uh, our audience a little bit of insight about who you are and what you do and, and what the NRA Firearms Museums are all about. Well, uh, I'm the senior curator at the NRA's uh, National Firearms Museum. We've been here since uh, 1935 uh, at the NRA headquarters uh, two different locations in downtown Washington and then uh, out here in Fairfax, Virginia, off of uh, Interstate 66 in the Washington suburbs. Uh, I've been with the museum for 31 years, 31 and a half years. And uh, it's uh, it's been a, a great thrill to, to be a part of all this. We've expanded a great deal in the 31 years. We have a National Sporting Arms Museum in uh, Springfield, Missouri at the Bass Pro uh, Headquarters store out, out there in Springfield. And that has about a thousand guns on, on exhibit. And we also have a, uh, a museum out at the Whittington Center, the Francis Brownell Museum in the Southwest in the, uh, the Whittington Center uh, NRA facility in Raton, New Mexico. 
Wow. Wow. That's uh, quite expensive. I mean, the, the collection then, I mean, if you're spreading it out through all of these, you know, different facilities, I mean, that's got to be, you know, quite the, uh, quite the archive <laughs> of, uh, of firearms and all the other memorabilia and historical articles that go along with it. Yeah, there's about 10,000 firearms. And I think uh, probably about that many you know, related accoutrements, you know, yeah. when you look at, uh, you know, shooting metals and, and swords and cartridge boxes and things of that nature, they probably equal each other. Yeah, for sure. Well, like I said before, we're, you know, we're really interested in, in kind of starting it at the beginning of the U S you know, what uh, we seem to put, um, you know, wartime as kind of these, uh, tent posts that we put, um, firearms around, you know, as far as firearms production and, and what was used, you know, we kind of use these eras. It was something that's very close to us here in Ohio is the United States Air Force Museum. And even their wings are, it's, it's early air. And then it goes basically by, you know, kind of different wartime eras. So I thought, you know, the, the best place to start for us would be, uh, would be back at the, at the Revolutionary War. You know, it doesn't take much of a Google search uh, when you say, uh, firearms of the Revolutionary War, uh, that the Brown Bess is uh, one of the first things that that pops up. Uh, could you talk to us just a, a little bit about the about the Brown Bess and, and what it meant to uh, the colonial army? Sure. The, uh, the Brown Bess was the standard uh, British uh, soldiers infantry long arm from 1722 until uh, the 1820s. Uh, there were some, you know, obviously used well past that. And you know, there's even a report that there was one used at Shiloh during uh, the American Civil War in 1862. Uh, and there were about 4 million of them of all different types and patterns made in the, uh, the hundred years that, they, that the gun saw service. You know, we talk a lot about the AR-15, the M-16 being America's rifle and the longest serving um, infantry long arm in American history because it, it was adopted in, you know, 1965 and, and continues to this day. And, uh, you know, 50 years is nice, but, you know, the Brown Vest was out there for a hundred years. Right. Uh, so, I, I mean, and, and this is a period of time that, you know, is leading right up until the eve of the industrial revolution in mass production. And it, it's a uh, it's a remarkable gun. It's one of the most uh, sturdy and uh, practical flintlock muskets that I've ever handled. That in the Charleville, of course, and um, it was a big gun. Uh, you know, seventy five caliber was the you know one of the largest diameters and calibers of any infantry weapon ever fielded. Right, and. Uh, you know, three quarters of an inch of lead flying down the field is pretty intimidating. Oh, for sure. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's uh, that's something else, you know, especially in that time. And I mean, obviously, if we look at it in modern day terms, it would seem to us like it's very, you know, very limited as far as, you know, the the resources that were available to be be able to have such things because the brown best would have been all you know you know imported for lack of a better term is is that true well yeah the brown best was you know made in the english uh 
armory system, well, which is kind of what, where I guess the word cottage industry comes from. Mm-hmm. Uh, they uh, they had people that made the stocks, made the locks, made the uh, barrels, straightened the barrels, you know, and, and assembled it all at, at, at one of the armories. And uh, they all had to be within a certain tolerance, you know, of of manufactured standards, but they they certainly didn't achieve anything in the way of interchangeability in parts. Yeah. Um, the uh, the gun, uh, you know, is imported to the colonies. Obviously, uh, they they didn't uh, they didn't make any here as far as the British Board of Ordnance would have adopted them. They did make copies of them here. They made a lot of them. Uh, and they called those committee of safety muskets. And uh, each of the different colonies uh, decided to arm their own their own citizens uh, in the uh, in the local militia. And so they adopted committees of safety uh, in view of what they thought might be uh, you know a pending uh, you know conflict. Yeah, and uh, that those guns they just use the brown vests as the patterns. And when you're talking about those committee of safety guns, and uh, you know, you had said kind of you know different colonies arming their militias and so on, and and making them to whatever degree of originality. But is that where you know getting the term like a Pennsylvania you know gun or a Pennsylvania rifle comes from? Pennsylvania musket is that kind of the same? Is that the same you know family, if you will? Sadly, no. Uh, when we're talking about those, we're talking about rifles. Hmm. And, uh, you know, you've always heard, you know, Kentucky rifles and Pennsylvania rifles. And uh, there's even a big song uh, that was popular back then about, you know, Washington's soldiers, you know, with their uh, Kentuckys. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the thing that I find is interesting is that, you know, most of the colonies had had folks gunsmiths that were making rifles. Uh, Kentucky wasn't even a place, you know, other than on a distant map of where you can't go uh, back during the uh, American revolution. So Kentucky rifle was not a, it was not a word that, that was on anybody's lips back then. It didn't exist. And, uh, you know, the rifled aspect of it was somewhat, more restrained there there was a lot of money was involved in getting somebody to make a rifle whereas a musket was a gigantic pipe you know a big smooth bore 75 caliber for the british or 69 caliber for the uh for the americans on the most part and uh but to call it a pennsylvania or kentucky is kind of a misnomer because there there were virginia rifles there were connecticut rifles uh even Massachusetts had had a rifle, you know, a maker uh, just a few years before the war started. There was uh, a gunsmith making rifles in in Massachusetts. So every every colony and then state had their own their own rifles. And depending on on how practiced you are, you can look at a handcrafted long arm from the period and say, "Oh, that's North Carolina school. Hmm. That's." Uh, Definitely Hanover, Pennsylvania style or Lancaster, Pennsylvania style, because these guys all apprenticed and, and journeyed with, uh, with, with 
you know, master gunsmiths. Uh, the movie The Revenant that was out not too long ago about Hugh Glass. He was an apprentice and journeyman gunsmith in uh, in the Pittsburgh area, and the gun that he you know took west with them that uh, you know that the one character steals from him in the movie was a gun he made and, and had certain features that could be identified by other mountain men, you know, all over the plains could look at that gun and say, Oh, we know what part of Pennsylvania that came from that shoe glasses gun. Mm. Uh, and that's exactly how they identified it with Indians, you know, in the 1820s that had, after they'd killed Hugh glass, they, they identified those who took it, uh, his gun because his gun was like a thumbprint. Sure. And uh, so all these, and they were very expensive. You, you, you have, uh, uh, you know, you just didn't collect long rifles back then. You were lucky to get, get your hands on one good one. Yeah. Well, and, and, and speaking of that one that you mentioned earlier, um, when we were talking about the Brown Bess is just the Charleville. Um, and you know, what, what, if somebody's, you know, new to all this and, you know, they, they hear and read about the Brown Bess, if they start researching the Charleville, what, what are, you know, kind of the main differences, how did that come into play for us? Um, you know, how, how does that, you know, stack up? Well, it's kind of an interesting story because with the Brown Bess, you've got, you know, the British infantry is armed with that. And so they're here. Uh, they have stores and armories. Uh, the early uh, uh, colonies required, uh, some of the colonies required their male citizens to have a musket. They were issued muskets. Uh, so they were brown besses in the hands of, of civilians, but they were militia members. And um, you had great stores and armories, like if you've ever been to Williamsburg, Virginia, going into the the armory there and seeing all the brown besses row on row on row and in the governor's palace, uh, the brown besses that line the wall there, there's literally 200 of them in the entrance foyer. Jeez. <laughs> and I'd like to have a, a foyer like that. <laughs> and uh, so, you know, the brown best, you know, was definitely uh, an iconic gun to, to American colonists uh, before the revolution, you know, began. And there were a lot of them in their hands and, and there were a lot of, uh, uh, you know, a lot of them that, that, that had been copied, like we said, with the committees of safety muskets. Uh, during the French and Indian Wars that occurred in the 1760s, the French, you know, brought a lot of Charlevilles over. Uh, their their soldiers used the Charleville. The Brown Bess was developed, adopted in about 1722. The Charleville has five years on the Brown Bess. I think the first model Charleville is 1717. And whereas they estimate 4 million Brown Besses were made, they think 7 million Charlevilles uh, were manufactured during its it's run as the uh, standard infantry arm of the, uh, uh, of the French. And uh, again, a, you know, a gun that goes all the way, you know, from, uh, you know, Louis Quatorze all the way to Waterloo. Uh, yeah. So it's quite a, quite a history there too. And uh, because of our alliance and uh, with the French during the, uh, during the war and, and Lafayette, 
helping to secure French troops, arms, and ships, which, you know, if it wasn't for Rochambeau blocking, you know, the uh, Hampton Roads and keeping Cornwallis from being resupplied at Yorktown, that that war could have gone on for another decade. Yeah. Uh, but it was it was the French ships and uh, and the guns that that ended the uh, American Revolution on a positive note for the young republic, as it were. Yeah, absolutely. Um, with that in in mind, you know the the Charlevilles that that would have been used by them. You know, were these things that were being supplied by the French during the revolution, or was it just kind of leftover stockpile from the French and Indian War? You know, where you know, kind of where does where did they you know did the colonial army end up getting their supply? Well, I think obviously some would have been, you know, found their ways into the uh, into the ranks as captured guns and, you know, maybe abandoned, uh, you know, war trophies from the French and Indian War. But I, I can't imagine many uh, were like that. Uh, you know, a gun was a serious piece of equipment and uh, expensive. So they, they weren't left, uh, you know, lying about more or less. They, they you know, both sides went to great care and concern to, to keep them. Uh, you know, didn't leave a lot of uh, of the detritus of war laying about on the battlefield after an engagement. They they kind of cleaned up real quick. So I would imagine that a lot of a lot of uh, you know Charlevilles may have found their way into the uh, in the hands of the you know the different colonists you know militia units from the colonies and. Um, but not a great deal. It wasn't until they started to get imported during the war. And mm. uh, the uh, the French brought them over in great numbers uh, to equip the army with. And that's when uh, most Americans became uh, familiar with the uh, the three-banded musket, whereas the, uh, the brown bass is a pinned barrel uh, long arm. And so it has no barrel bands on it and it is very easily identified as such. From a distance, the Charleville has the uh, barrel bands that hold the barrel to the uh, the stock, and it was the Charleville that uh, our own uh, 1795 Springfield musket, the first U.S. standard U.S. Uh, military uh, long arm, was adopted from you know and patterned after, and uh, the uh, this the Springfield is the uh, you know is what you see on on. Uh, you know the the cross the crossed rifles of the infantry branch of service in the in the army uh, were the uh, that that early Springfield Charleville design. And when we're talking about all these, I mean, you had mentioned it with with the brown bass. You know, I'm assuming none of the firearms that we're talking about right now had really gotten to a point of any kind of standard tooling or interchangeable parts or things of that variety. Is that correct? If there was a major issue, it's not like you could just swap things in the field. No, if something broke, it stayed broke. Uh, and that was the, uh, you know, that was the the big failing of, of cottage industry or the armory system of manufacture. You, you had, you know, s literally locally sourced guys that, that would provide you with different parts, but they had a tolerance to them, you know, go, no go gauges, but they weren't, they weren't to the point where anything was interchangeable. Now, 
when Thomas Jefferson was serving as a uh, an ambassador to, to France, uh, and this is just after the war ended in, in, in 1785, he went over to, uh, to Saint-Étienne uh, in France to, to look at their armory and actually kind of spy on our ally mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and find out, you know, how they went about manufacturing stuff. And so he talked to a guy named Henri Blanc. Now, uh, Monsieur Blanc had been at the armories for decades and was very instrumental in coming up with a new way of casting uh, cannon barrels, and uh, which literally would revolutionize the world, not only through uh, the uniformity of, of the artillery that the French would have, and which Napoleon would put to to amazing use uh, during his campaigns, but in the way that the artillery was made. And so Blanc talked to uh, uh, Jefferson and uh, he said, yes, there is another system that I've developed that I've, I've kind of perfected on paper, uh, but they won't, uh, they won't employ it here because of the cost. And he, he began to explain the manufacture of identical parts on, by machine, uh, machine-made tolerance uh, parts, and uh, how he, in his mind, felt that that could lead to mass production in an assembly line, where everything could be manufactured under one roof uh, with enough machines. And he said they just don't realize that in the long run that this would save the money. The buildup is expensive. You have to mm-hmm. build, you know, lots and lots of machines. But once you get them running, they start turning out parts. You make it up in the mass production part. And Jefferson being the consummate Renaissance man and inventor and, and curious mind that he was, just was fascinated by what Blount was telling him. And he writes a letter to John Jay uh, that you can read in the Jefferson papers. And uh, he tells John Jay, one of our our soon to be first chief justice of the Supreme Court, you know, about this whole system and how amazing it is. And, um, and that's the beginning of planning the idea for interchangeability and parts of mass production into the, uh, the building of Springfield Armory and eventually Harper's Ferry. Uh, it was Jefferson's idea that he brought back from France from the guy that was making Charlevilles and kind of germinated it uh, into what we would we would begin the industrial revolution with. Very good. You know, one thing that goes along with all of these and, you know, it only takes seeing a couple of movies or going to a couple of museums and seeing paintings from uh, the era, uh, you always see a bayonet on things. And, uh, although it's not, uh, a firearm in and of itself, it's obviously a a big part of, of what, uh, you know, the, the army used, um, during this time and, and really for quite a long time, having, having a bayonet, uh, you know, being kind of, kind of standard issue. Um, but what, what went along, you know, with that, I, I feel that we've talked before that maybe there was even some, you know, bayonet training, you know, downing horses with these things. You know, if you're, if your rifle or your musket fouls up, you at least have something, 
that's of you know uh, of lethal capability uh, on you. Uh, just if you could just tell us a bit about the importance of it, and was it a a perceived um, perceived sense of security to have one, or was it uh, you know did it actually play out on the field of battle? Well, you know, bayonets are certainly. Um offer psychological advantage. Uh, I guess today we would call it a force multiplier (laughs) to a degree. Um, You know, originally, uh, before, you know, firearms became uh, prevalent throughout the, uh, you know, militaries of the world, which really began in earnest during the English Civil War of 1640s and 50s, you had pikemen you know, guys with long pikes. And that was to, uh, to stop the advance of mounted, mounted men, cavalry uh, against infantry. And so you had guys with 13 foot, you know, wooden sticks and, uh, you know, an, a, an iron, you know, blade mounted to the end of it. And there were all kinds of drill manuals on, on how pikemen were, were to, uh, you know, defensive infantry against cavalry and, and, and stuff like that. And so when firearms became prevalent and you started to be able to throw a, a great deal of lead down range, uh, you know, an idea of combining the pike with a musket wasn't a hard stretch, you know, or leap uh, of faith to, to do that. Uh, Originally, bayonets were employed when you either ran out of ammo or your gun became fouled or out of out of uh, commission, or you were closing as a as a mass on on the enemy. Uh, you could put in what they called a uh, you know a, a you know a plug bayonet, which was uh, you know went straight down the barrel. You know the the handle, the grip went straight down the barrel of the musket. And, uh, and, and the musket was immediately converted into a, uh, a pike, you know, that was about six feet in length. And, uh, but it didn't allow you to fire. Right. You know, if you fired, you'd blow the barrel up. Uh, so this was uh, an item of last, a weapon of last resort in that regard. But eventually they thought, wow, we could, uh, you know, put an angular socket on this and and we could shoot and stab. You know, we could, <laughs> yeah. you know, a two for one uh-huh. is the Swiss Army knife of muskets. Right. And and you had a need for that because as uh, as formidable as you know a seventy five caliber you know brown best musket ball looks, and you could see those coming. You know, depending on on how far away. Uh, you know, a lot of people you know said you could actually see. Uh, you know, the bullets in the air because, again, three quarters of an inch diameter lead uh, flying uh, at less, way less than 800, you know, feet per second. It, it's not a hard, you know, thing to pick up if the sun's right. And um, Major, Je- uh, Major George Hanger of the British uh, Army wrote in 1777, he said, Woe be it uh, to the unlucky fellow hit and done harm by a shot fired into distance greater than 75 yards. Mm. So can you imagine that? You know, two regiments 
in the goalposts of a football field, hammering away at each other and not really drawing blood, yeah. you know, at a hundred yards. Now I personally have found that most Charlottesville's and Brown Besses are perfectly accurate at hundred yards and, and lethal, uh, but not much more past that. Mm-hmm. Now a rifle on the other hand, big difference with the rifle, you could go, you know, 300 yards uh, with that and still provide accurate uh, lethality with, with the rifle. Problem with the rifle is your tolerance to get the rifle to be effective. It has to have, you know, a hundred percent gas check. You can't have black powder blowing around the bullet. So the bullet has to fit to the, to the patch, to the rifling, you know, in a seal so that, that it, you know, the propulsion, you know, it threads itself through the other uh, barrel, comes out spinning. Uh, muskets being smooth bore, you just put a wad in and that pushes the ball out the uh, the muzzle and it you know goes in any direction, uh, you know, mm-hmm. it finds comfortable. Uh, so the accuracy on a musket's uh, far, far less. A rifle, you can reach out and hit somebody at 300 yards, but it's going to foul up and become, uh, you, you're not going to be able to load it after 10 or 12 rounds where a musket doesn't have those tolerances and you can shoot that all day without it fouling out on you. And um, so that's why muskets had bayonets because you could move in on the enemy with them and present a wall of cold steel, as they called it. Whereas a rifle, you know, the British put a, a bayonet lug on, on Baker rifles in the 1800s, but mostly rifles don't have bayonets uh, during this time period. So it's just your muskets. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, you, we were taught to load and fire three times a minute. And as you closed and advanced on your enemy, whoever uh, you know, stood their ground uh, would, would then get the bayonet or give the bayonet. And there were, uh, uh, you know, transitions from the old pikeman's manual to the uh, infantry manual, uh, such as the Gaines manual that show how uh, a musketeer, musketman, you know, could guard against cavalry just like a pikeman would by going down on one knee and bracing the stock of his musket against the insole of his foot and holding it out there with a bayonet would give him pretty good reach. Yeah. I just, you know, that's, that's something that, um, I think for most of us, when you, when you talk about just some of this imagery, like you just said, with the whole idea of, you know, piking with the bayonet and the fact that, you know, when the sun's right, you can see lead flying through the air because it's not at the, you know, supersonic speeds that, that we're all used to seeing ammunition fly now. Uh, I, I think, and, and also the, the close quarters of combat, you know, I, I think that that those, those things, uh, even though we see like Hollywood representation or, or, you know, we may read about it in history, if you really take a moment to think about it, uh, just how uh, amazingly frightening that is and how amazingly otherworldly, you know, that must seem, you know, to, to the, you know, to these people who were going out and into battle and probably felt, uh, undersupplied and you're going up against this, this powerhouse, uh, you know, of, of the British army. Uh, that's something that, uh, 
uh, always just makes my head spin. You know, when we talk about these things, it's not the modern warfare, you know, that that we're used to. And it's not the modern warfare that we see depicted in video games and movies and all this sort of stuff. It's a it's a much more uh, uh, person to person, real time, uh, in your face style of, of conflict that I, I think is just astounding. It's it's pretty scary. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Uh, it, it takes a lot of, uh, I guess, intestinal fortitude to, you know, to, to be witness to something like that and then voluntarily go back and, you know, and subject yourself to it again. Even as late as 1862 at Sharpsburg, I've read accounts of Confederate soldiers saying they, they watched artillery rounds coming towards them. You know, they could see them in midair. Uh, personally, I used to take a, a great big old 455 Webley out to the range and try my luck at milk jugs at 100 yards. And if the sun was right, I could see where the bullets were going, you know, before they hit the milk jug. Yeah. Because uh, that great big old lump of lead was, wasn't moving, you know, more than seven, 800 feet per second. And, and, you know, the term dodge the bullet is uh, is literally you know, I guess more wishful thinking because they are moving fast. You right. know, there's, there's, yeah. It's not like getting out of the way of a football that was thrown towards you, but I guess that was wishful thinking that somebody might be able to dodge a bullet, but you could certainly see them mm -hmm. uh, in, in, in certain, uh, you know, uh, circumstances. I'm not saying that everybody out there was watching uh, uh, bullets fly by like in a tennis match, but uh uh, certainly that that it was uh it was possible to see uh something like that uh certainly i i don't think anybody successfully dodged a bullet um in that you know in that literal ma uh manner but you could certainly see see them on an occasion yeah for sure well one uh more question i have before we wrap up is just kind of moving to the curation side of things you know when when uh the museum acquires these firearms you know regardless of era i suppose you know what all goes into the you know the preservation um and and making sure that these things are you know, taken care of, but not totally stripped down and, you know, being able to be on display, you know, is what all is involved in that, getting these things cleaned up and display ready and, you know, preserved as accurately as possible. Well, when we accept a donation or, or take something in on loan, we, uh, you know, we have an understanding with the lender, uh, that we're going to, uh, you know, take the best care of it as, as we possibly can. And we get their permission as to whether or not we can, you know, uh, treat the firearm conservation techniques. And sometimes they say yes, and, and sometimes they just rather we don't, uh, you know, uh, fool around with it, which is fine. Uh, when we get our own guns in, uh, we take them all apart uh, within reason. You know, we don't force any any screws. If uh, if it's not going to to come loose without, you know, turning the head, we don't we don't go in. You know, won't go any further. We give it as much uh, TLC as we can as as we take it apart. And, and 
by taking apart, removing the lock and separating the barrel from the stock is, is about as far as we go, but that's just to get it any hidden rust, you know, that we can't see uh, and to arrest that before, you know, it you know, takes up too much, uh, you know, damage on, on the piece. We, um, we oil the, the wood furniture with linseed oil uh, and, uh, and, and do a couple of, of wipes with that because it takes, uh, you know, a few hand rub, you know, applications and coats of linseed oil to get it to, to soak in. Uh, you don't want to completely soak it. Uh, the wood will swell and then you'll have, you know, problems. But a lot of these things haven't seen wood in, or oil in, in decades and have started to shrink away from the, uh, the mounts and the screws. Uh, so you want to keep a fine line there and you want to uh, oil uh, the parts that do have direct contact with the wood. And uh, and then we coat it with uh, what we call Renaissance wax, which is a, uh, a micro crystalline wax. I think there's probably a, it was, it's usually can't write it at arm's length. <laughs> and uh, here we go. Just in and, case. Uh, <laughs> I'm not, oh, it's too bright. I don't have the. Uh, oh, there we go. Let's see. Did it, yeah. Uh, yeah. And uh, so we, uh, we put that, apply that microcrystalline wax uh, to the, uh, to the metal parts. And uh, it provides uh, a barrier and a and protection against, uh, you know, humidity and rust. And we store them at, uh, you know, an ideal temperature and humidity that'll keep the wood from drying out, but keep the, uh, the metal from rusting. Yeah. That's, uh, you know, it's a, large responsibility, especially as you said, if you're taking things in on loan to, you know, from, from private owners, I mean, that's, uh, and I'm, and I'm assuming these things are coming into you at various states of repair or disrepair, uh, you know, when, when they're coming in and because it's not just these brown besses and Charlevilles and things that are coming in, you, you hold items all across the catalog, all across, uh, all across history. I mean, that's, uh, that is quite, that is quite uh, something to take care of. Yeah. It's, uh, it's a big responsibility because, uh, you know, it's, 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 you know, they say you only hurt the ones you love. Right. Mm -hmm. And, uh, so you, you might keep your own collection in, in, uh, a certain state, but when it's somebody else's stuff, uh, you really got to be on point uh, yeah. because you, you don't want to, um, you know, to, to give them back something that's depreciated. Mm -hmm. And uh, you have the, you know, the reputation of the museum to hold up. Uh, the NRA had a, 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 a very dear friend, has a very dear friend, uh, the son of one of our, uh, earliest board members, and um, he loaned the uh, museum a pair of North and Cheney pistols, which had been uh, the first pistols that the U.S. military ever adopted from 1795. And um, he loaned those to us, and we were excited because we didn't even have one, and there were two models, and he loaned us one of each. And uh, they're extraordinarily valuable, over $100,000 a piece. 
and uh, we, we photographed them and put them on exhibit and sent him pictures of the exhibit. And he wrote me back saying, why is my, my stock cracked oh, on one of the pistols? <laughs> and I said, what? And uh, he said, yeah, in this picture, my stock's got an airline crack in it. And and I looked at the pictures, and sure enough, the photos we take when when something came in versus the photos that we took for the catalog uh, for the exhibit uh, showed a hairline crack had developed. Yeah. And we handle everything with white gloves, and by that I mean not only are we really wearing white gloves, but we handle it with kid gloves. We are very careful, you know, that we're not you're transporting, you know, something over, you know, a distance or where it falls greater than, you know, two feet or something like that. And to think that somebody dropped this and broke, broke the grips was horrifying. Yeah. And it turns out, you know, when the, the grips did separate that they had actually been broken a century or so earlier uh. and had been glued back together, not by him. He had no idea, um, but it was the change in humidity and temperature shipping them from Washington state to, uh, to Fairfax and, uh, and, and the different climate that uh, caused the wood to swell and constrict. Mm. And that's what, what uh, heightened the, uh, the the break in the uh, in the wood? It, it exacerbated that, and that old that old repair kind of revealed itself after a hundred years. Yeah, that's um, that's something too. Even when we see just from a product standpoint, you know, we clean up a gun for photos or you know whatever. And and for us, you know, not not much here is of wood furniture or anything. But you know, we'll get it uh, we'll get it on the big screen and start doing our you know edits and things. It's like well. <laughs> Mr. Spot cleaning, you know, like you can't see, you can't see with your, with the, with the naked eye and even under the lights, but man, you, you put a high res camera on it and throw it on a big screen. You could, you could see just a, just about anything. And I bet with all the different woods and the different ages and how they had been treated in the past for the type of items that, that you get from those early eras. I mean, that's some real temperamental stuff. And it's, uh, it's pretty interesting because more than once I've been, uh, you know, on the sidelines or, or actively participating in identifying, you know, an antique gun purely by the grain of the wood. Uh, I could tell you three stories about a gun. We didn't know the serial number, but uh, we knew which gun it was because we could match the grain like a thumbprint. Hmm. Uh, to a photograph and in, in one case an engraving you know how during the uh, Civil War period Harper's Weekly had you know artists like Wad and and, uh, and others out there drawing sketches of the battles that would then be converted to woodcuts and uh, you get that graving the same type of uh, dot line engraving that you see on the portraiture of, of dollar bills, you know, for the uh, portraits on, on our currency. And now the, uh, there was a book uh, that was written about Kit Carson's Hawk and Rifle. And um, 
the author had a woodcut engraving done of the rifle. And, and later it was found that he gave the gun to Theodore Roosevelt. His grandson gave it to Theodore Roosevelt. And then somebody in the Roosevelt uh, uh, you know, family gave the gun collection to the Park Service. And then the Park Service uh, evidently in the 70s you know, thought, well, here's a number of things that, that don't really apply to Theodore's you know, life not knowing the story about the Hawk and rifle belonged to Kit Carson mm. at one point and they sold it at auction. Wow. And, a, and there were two of them and, uh, but only one of them was the Kit Carson gun. And so uh, a friend of mine's uncle bought it and uh, he said, uh, and then his, his nephew got it. My friend, he says, well, how do we, you know, prove that this was because now the park service isn't interested in giving it provenance. Yeah. And uh, I said, well, we got the book from Edwin Beals and looked up the gun and, and, and the engraving on the, of the woodcut of the gun matched the, uh, the engraving on the stock. Wow. Uh, you could see the chips and the cracks in the woodcut from 110 years ago, uh, you know, match the gun right in front of you. Uh, Audie Murphy's Red Badge of Courage musket. You know, one scene he's got an Enfield, another scene he's got a, uh, you know, a Springfield that, you know, just ran all over the place. But in the one scene, we have a great still photograph of him holding a Trenton, you know, 61 dated Springfield. And uh, you can, again, see the dings and dents in it, you know, just like a thumbprint. Yeah. So keeping the wood, you know, the wood clean and and uh, and and well oiled, you know, it it can help tell the story of where it's been and what it's done. Absolutely. Well, Philip, as as we wrap up, if people are interested in learning more about uh, the NRA Firearms Museum and all the things that you have going on, what, what where's the best uh, place we can point them to? Well, if you. Uh, I can't get biased personally. Uh, we recommend you can visit us 24 hours a day at uh, nramuseums.org. And uh, we've got all three museums online and you can see the galleries, virtual tours, uh, articles that staff have written about different pieces in the collection. So uh, the uh, websites are also link you to our YouTube channels. And our Facebook and Instagram uh, pages where you can see what's uh, what's the latest. And in fact, if you're planning on visiting us here, uh, hit the website first because we're not open yet. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Springfield, Missouri is open, but I think uh, Whittington Center and Fairfax are both still uh, awaiting the end of the uh, the Chinese plague yes. uh, to uh, to reopen. Very good. Well, yes, we'll make sure that we get uh, all of the information in our show notes uh, so folks could uh, find you there. So again, nramuseums.org. And just like Philip said, lots of resources, lots of articles, great photos and videos uh, to get some of those up close and personal looks, even if you if if you can't be there in person. So, Philip, thank you once again for joining us. And we look forward to having you on again soon. I look forward to it. And I, I really do sincerely appreciate the opportunity to be here with you. Oh, totally our pleasure. It's great to have you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye-bye. 
I think their product headline says it best, ring steel, not your ears. If you haven't checked out uh, episode 27 of the Facts and Blogging podcast, we actually spoke uh, to Jared from Caldwell Shooting about some of their uh, extensive line of hearing protection and accessories. One of the things that they sent out to us was a set of their Emax Shadows. And the nice thing about the Emax Shadows is not only are they excellent ear protection for the range or for training, or even when you're just mowing your lawn or working with power tools, uh, but they also are a Bluetooth headset. So if you're into earbuds and power beats and AirPods and all that kind of thing, you can still get great stereo sound, dual microphones and device control, all right here from the shadows. And again, when you use those foam tips, uh, you also get a 25 dB noise reduction rating as well. So if you're out on the range all day, you're working on a project in the garage, you wanna listen to music, you still need to take calls, that sort of thing, no need to be taken on and off the giant muffs. You could just have a pair of shadows in and you can find these over at caldwellshooting.com. And don't forget to check out our whole episode about hearing protection with Caldwell at factsandfirearms.com slash blog. Well, welcome to another installment of Jay's World of Eats. We have uh, quite a full lineup today. Yeah, we got some uh, some home-cooked meal stuff going yeah, on. Yeah, we do. Shout out uh, to Pickle. You've heard a lot about Pickle. You're going to see some pictures of him here soon. Uh, <laughs> he messaged me on Facebook last night and said he was going to bring us in some barbecued goose Nice. Uh, and sent the pictures of said uh, hunted goose. Yeah, um, you got a whole haul of, of gooses. A whole gander. Even uh, you, a, gander. a gander. Isn't that a group Is that of geese? the grouping? A gander, a flock of geese? Uh, Seagulls? Gaggle. Gaggle of geese. Uh, so he has some barbecued uh, goose. Which he describes as the ribeye of the sky. <laughs> yes, if you didn't know, Canada goose, ribeye of the sky. He brought it in this nice uh, pioneer woman. Um, yeah. Crock pot. <laughs> very nice. Crock pot. <laughs> Shout out to a uh, pioneer woman. Yeah, uh, very but, flowery. Yes, uh, but uh, <laughs> really ties the table together. It brings brings it all brings yeah. it all together. Goes right with the aesthetic. Yeah. Uh, but this week's uh, installment is brought to you by our friends at Caldwell Shooting Supplies. Uh, we're going to be giving away one of the ultimate target stands here, um, as well as one of our new um, Wild Gear multi can koozies. So Ooh, man, we had um, the red ones. Uh, but we just got the blue ones in stock from our mm. friends of Wild Gear. So you could, uh, if you're interested in just buying one of these, uh, you could go to factsandfirearms.com slash gear. Uh, check out all of our merchandise and apparel, uh, including drinkware from Wild Gear. But this thing's pretty slick. It does like uh, multiple cans or bottles as a bottle opener on the bottom. Or you, it has a lid to make it just like a tumbler. <laughs> fits many different things. Fits. It fits. If it fits, it sips. Ooh. See that? Wild nice. Gear, call me. I got uh, yeah, yeah. tons, tons yeah. of these flying around. Tons of these. Um, all right. So... <clears throat> Uh, I did tell Pickle that he forgot uh, that last week I had mentioned, or maybe he remembered, and this is why he did it. 
that frozen meats uh, freak me out. Like mm, after yeah. a certain amount, and so yeah. this has been. This is not a recently killed goose. This is oh, goose this isn't new. This is goose that has been in his freezer for a while, <laughs> and uh, then he's handing it off. But he was in here oh, eating it. Well, thank uh, you, Pickle. John from Sales is in here eating it. So, I think we are decently safe. He even brought us in some little King's, King's Hawaiian rolls. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Very nice. Yeah. So. He did uh, say that it was shot with steel and not lead. So if we do uh, bite down on something, we don't have to worry about lead poisoning, just a broken tooth. <laughs> just a broken tooth. Yeah. Thank you. So here is you, the pickle. plastic fork <laughs> for you. I'm going to use the Jay's World of Eats cutting board Yes, as a plate. Mm-hmm. Very nice. Very nice. And while you're dolloping yourself up here. We do uh, do have a, mm-hmm. a a visitor on campus today. <laughs> Very exciting. Jay's dad is here. Uh, we're he gonna see here. Maybe we could sneak him in for a cameo. Oh God, are we? I don't know. I'd like to. I think that'd be fun. <laughs> I saw him in the front hall. I had a running errand. They came back in. He was checking in as I came in. Is uh, I'm stoked. Wonderful. <laughs> Talk to Chris. <laughs> a cameo, just what I need. <laughs> just, <laughs> just, just, just what, what I, need. I need. It could be your family Christmas card. It'll be good. Uh, so I, I sent um, Dustin an email over the weekend after last week's episode aired, uh, in which my father demanded to come on the show to defend his good name. Yes. <laughs> yeah. After the whole uh, Lunchables incident and the canned ha- or canned bacon for yeah. Christmas. Yeah, right. To defend uh, my good yeah, name. Yeah, defend his good name. All yeah. right. All right. Barbecue goose. Hmm. That's pretty good. It's good. Yeah. Still sifting around. The ribeye of this guy. <laughs> the ribeye of this guy looking for the steel shot. But um, this is a good. <laughs> this is a good time to tell you that we are uh, we are working with Eric and some other folks here to uh, do some game meat uh, segments. Um, yeah, we're going to be doing some uh, going out on the hunt, getting the that type of footage, um, and kind of walking you through the process. So from the hunting to the harvesting. Uh, to the prep and the and then the cooking. Yeah. Um, so our friends at Meat, if you've not heard of Meat, uh, mm-hmm. super cool brand. Uh, they're sending us some stuff uh, that we could use on the show. Everything from like meat processors, grinders, slicers, uh, jerky guns, um, all kinds of different stuff. Dehydrator. Dehydrator. Yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah. So we're going to be using some of their stuff on the air, which we're really excited about, which will also be part of this. And uh, got uh, our friends at Camp Chef sending over a, a smoker for us yeah. to use. Um, so we're going to have some really cool things. If you would uh, like to see certain things done, uh, feel free to let us know. Email us yeah. podcast at factsandfirearms.com um, to uh, get some uh, get some of your input in. You know, we're looking at uh, later in the season when it's deer season here, doing some uh, deer processing and cooking and uh, all yeah. kinds of stuff. So uh, Jay's World of Eats is on the up and up. It's going to be very exciting. It's going to be it's great. It's going to be very exciting. I'm pretty pumped about this. So uh, I guess this is the first taste of, good. of things to come. Yeah. Old goose. <laughs> Ribeye of the sky. Old goose. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I've ever eaten goose. I've never had goose either. I've had duck. Yeah. I don't think I've ever eaten goose. Yeah. Pretty good. Mm-hmm. All right. 
Well, thank nice. you, Pickle. Nice. Thank, thank you, you, Pickle. Thank you, Pioneer Woman. <laughs> um, Pioneer Woman. Yeah, really classing up the... Uh, really <laughs> classing up the joint. Um, classing up the joint. Now, Jay, before we knew we had... Because I, I texted you this morning. I was like, uh, Pickle brought goose. Pickle brought goose. Um, <laughs> but if uh, you, you already had a, a yeah. snack lined up for us. Now, just a heads up, we are... Um, in the prepping stages of doing our Thanksgiving special. So uh, uh, we're going to have some more uh, more fun stuff coming yeah. with that. Yeah. But, uh, this snack I'm pretty uh, pretty enthusiastic about, Dustin. Mm, so Too enthusiastic thumbs up. Unique, uh, unique pretzels. Mm-hmm. Uniquepretzels.com. So I found these things uh, this weekend, both at Jungle Gym's. Mm-hmm. And at Whole Foods, oh, okay, because I frequent, of both. course, go to like four or five grocery stores a week. Uh, the fact <laughs> is, you have to go to Whole Foods after you go to Jungle Gyms. You can, all right, uh, yeah, yeah, all right. Uh, but they are um, these super crispy, uh, sort of, sort of extra, extra crunchy. And they got nice little air pockets in them. Pretzels. Mm-hmm. Um, they aren't dense. Uh, the two flavors I tried were uh, this, which is the extra salt version, <laughs> which is incredible. Um, Piggy, piggy, piggybacking off of last week. <laughs> pretzels <laughs> never have enough salt for me. I always <laughs> want them to be super salty, and these things are no joke. Uh, and then the other flavor I tried was the extra dark which are sort of like extra roasted, almost charred on the top. Okay. Uh, I ate that entire bag this weekend. So, uh, <laughs> I thought you were going to say this morning. <laughs> so <laughs> I did not bring any of those in, but um, that was pretty good. Yeah. You know, I always, I always like when uh, snack companies understand that there's some of us that like our snacks darker roasted. Yeah, like Cheez-Its. Yeah, like the Cheez-It thing, you know, brilliant um extra toasty yeah so uh i don't know if we can get like a product close-up shot here uh, you know spliced in but um hold for frame these things are pretty salty it looks pretty stout yeah that's good yeah they're really like how they do like the big coarse salt Mm -hmm. instead of like you know how some pretzels like they don't use like the the real you know, salt, like the mall pretzel yeah. salt, like this. They use just like regular salt. Mm-hmm. This is good. Yeah, I knew this uh, was a good call when I saw the American flag pretzel on yes. the back of the bag. What did so, you say? You said they're out of Pennsylvania. Yeah, somewhere in Pennsylvania. Uh, Redding, Redding, PA. Wonder if somebody got mad at like Snyder. <laughs> maybe it's like part of that. yeah there seemed to be like a fair amount of there's a lot of pretzel going on pretzel yeah you know, pretzel families going on mm-hmm. in the old pretzel PA. mafia pretzel mafia but uh PA. these guys legit this is great this is one of my uh new new favorites you know that's very good so and uh non-gmo verified mm, i don't know what gmos are but he's bona fide <laughs> probably don't care about them that much no. after our um, previous talks yeah. i don't think you care about them too much yeah right um that's very good so we'll give you a tag yeah unique delicious. pretzels if you want to if you want to 
Send us some more. You know what would be great? Some R&D flavors. Ooh, R&D flavors. Yeah. I don't know if they have any any other flavors. I only saw the uh, the dark and the extra salty, but um, I don't know if some. there are any other flavors. So, yeah. Yeah, um, we'll definitely. Uh, we'll test for you. Yeah, we'll test. We'll test. <laughs> we'll, we'll test. test you. All right. Give you a thorough, <laughs> yeah. thorough review. Um, yes. So don't forget if you have anything that you would like uh, for us to throw on Jay's World of Eats, uh, if you're going to be sending us game meat. Do so kindly. Uh, <laughs> podcast at factsandfirearms.com. <laughs> Don't forget, you could enter to win a Caldwell Ultimate Target Stand and a Wild Gear Multi-Can from Faxon. Uh, but just by going to factsandfirearms.com slash blog, click on episode 38 for all of the ways to enter. Uh, mm. Jay, before you go, would you like to hear the sound effects I've <laughs> queued up? Yeah, I definitely would. Uh, let me see. Let me make sound sure. effects. I have sound effects. Uh, see, the thing is, we are recording this before we record the new game show segment. Uh, first time with uh, first time with uh, uh, with our buddy Ryan Brun, which you've heard us talk a lot about. Brun, the bearded man himself, will be on the show. The, the my worry is. Uh, I don't know when I'm going to splice it in. Is it going to be after Jay's World of Eats? Mm. Is it going to be before? But in the, uh, you know, spirit of true transparency, we're recording this a, a, ahead of time. And I want to make sure Bren gets the full experience of the game show. <laughs> so I have some um, some sound effects. Would you mm. like to hear what Ryan will hear when he gets an answer correct? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Uh, thunderous applause. Very official. Yes. Our massive studio audience huge, here. Yeah. Huge. Uh, and then uh, if you get something wrong. Man. Classic. Yeah. Classic. Classic. All, all, all very good. I wish there was a trap door under him that if he got something wrong, he'd fall into some sort of pit. Or we could do Nickelodeon style, maybe drop mm, some slime yeah, on slime. him. Yeah, that'd be very good. Who's slime. the guy who did that? Family Truth or Dare or Family Double Dare. What was uh, what was his name? Mark Summers, maybe. Yes, and remember yeah. he like uh, came out years later as being like a weird like needophobe. Like he was like he was like incredibly clean and neat, like yeah. dust busting his kids' friends as they came in the house. <laughs> but he he hosted a show that people got slimed and gacked all the time. Man, isn't that a going to start dust busting people. <laughs> as soon as they come into the office. All right. Well, uh, we'll we'll give you some links here to uh, Unique Pretzels. Yeah. Uh, show you some pictures of the the before pictures of the goose uh, before we devoured it. Uh, so thank you for that. And don't forget to enter the giveaway. Factsfirearms.com slash blog episode 38. Yeah, yeah, very good. You know, it's no secret that the things that you keep in your gun safe are important. They're valuable. They're things that you want, you need, you need to hold on to, whether it's just your firearms and supplies, or I know a lot of people like to use their gun safes to hold things like tax returns and other important documents, family photos. All of those things are incredibly important. And to help keep better track of it and better maintenance on those items, Lockdown has a series of devices and utilities and tools to help keep those 
things that you treasure safe. One of my personal favorites that we actually use here in the office quite a bit uh, around our storage for cameras and lighting and things like that is just one of their dehumidifiers. Now they have lots of other stuff. You may have already heard of the golden rod. You've heard a lot of stuff about the lockdown puck, uh, which is a smart device to help keep your gun drawer, your safe, your tools, even your wine cellar safe uh, and checking up on the humidity and the atmosphere in those places as well. We did a great episode with lockdown several weeks back that you could check out at factsandfirearms.com slash blog, where we go through pretty much their entire product line and everything from the lockdown puck to dehumidifiers to even things like, you know, storage, rack shelving, things of that variety, keeping your safe, keeping your gun room clean, organized and protected. And you can even get something like this, one of their room or gun safe dehumidifiers. If you're looking to organize that space in your home, again, whether it's for your gun safe or just anything that you hold valuable, we'd recommend you go to lockdown.com. segment this week uh, in honor of Phil and the NRA Firearms Museum being on with us talking about uh, historical firearms. We thought it would be fun to play America's new favorite game. Is it a gun or a pro wrestler? We shall find out. We shall find out. And with us today as our contestant is our shipping manager, Mr. Ryan Brunn. Now you have, uh, you have seen, oh, I got you. Ooh, nice. There I you like go. that. I got you. Uh, now you've uh, you saw Ryan on our uh, uh, our little bit and gimmick at the old building about the new vending machines, which we also oh, yeah. have here. Yeah. And uh, he uh, gave us those olives a few weeks back, those spicy olives. Uh, patron of the show and now guest of the show. So nice. It's going to be fun. So here are the rules. I'm just going to give you two names. One is the name of an obscure gun, the other of an obscure professional wrestler. And all you have to do is tell me which one you think is the gun. Well, you know, I've been watching wrestling since I can remember. I remember back Hulk Hogan and Andre the Giant's first match when he first body slams him. Uh, taking some time off, so I should get a couple right, I would think. All right. <clears throat> so you ready? I'm ready. Let's give it a go. All right. So your first two, the Duckfoot or Brackus. Which one is the gun? Duckfoot or Brackus? Duckfoot's the gun. Yeah, you got it. That's right. The Duckfoot. Nice. Is a, uh, and we'll show a picture of this. I'll show this to you right quick now. There it is. Look at that crazy thing. Um, what is the point of that? Yeah, it uh, first appeared in the 1700s and 1800s and named after the shape of the barrels. Kind of goes out like a web foot of a duck. Yeah. So it's three barrels? Three barrels. Wow. Like a little weird, crazy, crazy handle. I think it was made in France. That explains a lot. I'm just kidding. <laughs> we love you, France. Yes. Uh, all right. Next. Gold Dust or Lamat? Gold Dust is the wrestler, of course. Nice. Gold Dust is... Uh, now, some people say he was the biggest gimmick ever in WWF before... Uh, you know, WWF became synonymous with the World Wildlife Fund. Uh, and it was, what was WWF? World Wrestling Federation? Yeah. Something something, something uh, like that. Also the son of Dusty Rhodes, the legendary Dusty Rhodes. That's right. Growing up, 
you know, my nickname was Dusty. I got a lot of that. You know, okay. Dusty Wallace. Like, oh, is your dad a race car driver? Or, oh, are you into wrestling? So I got got that. Quite when a uh, lot. we first moved here, <clears throat> the first gas pump that I went to had the sticker that said Dusty Rhodes, whatever he was. Yes, the county like, auditor. Yeah, that's it. And I was like, oh, that's where he went. Turns out it's not the same. Yeah, guy. Rhodes is spelled a little different. That, that always tripped me out too. Before we moved here, and we'd be down to like visit my wife's family, go to the gas station every time. It's like. The common man, <laughs> Dusty Rhodes. Oh, <laughs> uh, yes. The uh, Lamat is a gun. Look at this thing. Look at that. Invented in uh, 1856. That's actually pretty sweet looking. 42 caliber rounds. Uh, underneath this barrel was a bigger barrel for a 15 gauge shotgun round. That's the one they used to hunt Bigfoot, I'm sure. Yes, or Nessie or mm, whatever. That, uh, that, that sounds like a legit thing. All right. The Widowmaker or the Puckle? The Widowmaker is definitely the wrestler. Oh, my gosh. You know, this morning I came in. This is just a, a random idea I had last night. I was talking to Britt, uh, Britt Fax, who's been on the show before. Uh, and I was like, who do we think would be good at this? And she immediately thought of you. And she was right. Nice. The Widowmaker, Barry Windham, was a great face in NWA, WCW, and WWF. Uh, came back as the widow and maker. The puckle was made by some dude named James Puckle. And it was the uh, kind of granddaddy to the modern shotgun, mm. apparently. Or not modern shotgun, modern <laughs> machine gun. Uh, let's see. Three foot long barrel. Jesus. 1.25 inch. Uh, one th yeah. 1.25 inch long bore. Six to 11 shots. Uh, but it was hand loaded. So it wasn't semi-auto. All right, <clears throat> the next, the coffee mill sharps or the missing link? The missing link has to be the wrestler. Yes. One hundo. I don't remember exactly who that was, but I can kind of see his face. Let's see. A man painted green who could headbutt his way into beating people up. That's what it said. He was in WCW. He moved on to the other independent promotions oh, as well. Okay, I do remember that we'll, guy. We'll, we'll throw some pictures up on the screen for all these. You know, when I was putting these together this morning, though, you know, Barry Faxon, one of our owners, walks in and had to ask me a question about something else, and I have pictures of random, like, pro wrestlers <laughs> up on my screen. It's like, I'm working. I promise, <laughs> I promise I'm working. But the Coffee Mill Sharps, take a look at this guy. They actually took the sharp rifle and put coffee grinders and stuff because the union army drank so much coffee. They wanted to be able to have their coffee details in the buttstock of the rifle. It's actually pretty nice looking. That's, like that. that's a pretty legit, uh, idea. Definitely. Yeah. I thought you were going to say they shot each other with coffee grounds. <laughs> also that kind you of like run out bug, of bullets. The bugs. Uh, the bug assault. The bug assault. That's yes, it. Yes. Yeah. Just shoot, shoot, uh, shoot at your enemy. Well, you know what? We brought a ringer on the show. Oh, <laughs> yeah, we did. One more round of applause yes. for Ryan. Uh, don't forget to follow our friends at the NRA Museum. Uh, we're hoping to have Phil on a few times to kind of take us through the history of American firearms, and uh, we'll come up with some more fun game show stuff. Well, don't choose me for another wrestling one. Apparently not. What don't you know? Uh, that's it. You just well, know uh, wrestling? No, no, I don't. You're just a know music wrestling. guy. I'm a music guy. Um, uh, You're a beard a, guy. I'm a beard guy. A beard guy as well. You're a beard guy. Um, I don't know. 
probably wrestling and music, cartoons, cartoons, movies. Um, well, uh, I don't know next that. time, next time. But uh, is there like a prize or anything? Uh, we have leftover barbecue goose that Pickle brought in for Jay's World of Eats. You don't have a leftover set of those Caldwell earbuds? <laughs> I <laughs> feel like I'm looking at a pair. <laughs> Not currently. Damn. Spoken for. All right. Well, thank you, Ryan. We'll oh, see no you problem. next thank time you. on America's favorite game show. <laughs> nice. For those of you who have been watching the podcast for a while, you may know that uh, we had Ryan Donahue from Crimson Trace on for one of our episodes to talk all things optics and red dots and some of the exciting things that CT has coming up. But I just wanted to share one of my personal favorite products of theirs, and that is their Railmaster Pro, the CMR204. So not only is it a tactical light, it's also a laser, and it has all of the industry proven technology that Crimson Trace has been known for for so many years. But they're not just limited to things like lights and lasers. They've made a big splash in the electro optics game, whether it's looking at something like a traditional rifle scope, or maybe even their new battle optic, which you may or may not have seen in some TV shows and movies recently, they have a lot to offer. So obviously you're going to be seeing some more stuff uh, of Crimson Trace popping up with us here at Facts and Firearms. You may have even seen it uh, staged on our limited edition Mustang rifle that came out in the spring of 2020. Again, lots of cool stuff from them, just like the CMR204 or anything in their Railmaster series. We would encourage you to check them out at crimsontrace.com. Thank you for watching. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode. Again, if you would like to learn more about the NRA Firearms Museum, see some of the collection, uh, figure out where they are and read all the wonderful articles that they have, we'd encourage you to go to nramuseums.org. We'll also be linking their web and social media channels in the show notes this week. You can find that at factsandfirearms.com slash blog and click on episode 38. While you're there, you'll have the chance to enter in the giveaway for the Caldwell Ultimate Target Stand and the Wild Gear Faxon Multicam Koozie Tumbler, uh, all of which you saw on Jay's World of Eats. As always, if you have suggestions for the show, you have questions you want to get answered on air, uh, guest suggestions, uh, you want to send Jay something to eat, feel free to email us at podcast at faxonfirearms.com. And we would love for you to subscribe on your favorite video or podcast app. We're all over the place, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, um, all over the place recently now on Amazon Music as well. And you can find us on your smart devices by saying, hey, Google, hey, Alexa, play the facts and blog and podcast. You can find us there. So feel free to hit that like button, hit subscribe, and we will continue to be back with new episodes each and every week. As we close today, we'll send you off with our Guardian Purchase Program tutorial. If you are a veteran, a first responder, police, fire, uh, and more active duty, what have you. Uh, we want to say thank you by offering you special pricing and deals all year long. You could find more information about that at factsandfirearms.com and stick around for the video at the end of the show. Thank you again for tuning in and we'll see you next week. We want to extend our deepest gratitude to military, police, first responders, and more by saying thank you with special pricing and discounts on all facts and products. Here's how you get started. First, you'll head on over to our website, factsandfirearms.com. From there, you'll wanna click support, 
and Guardian Purchase Program in the dropdown. Then you'll see the instructions on how to get started. So let's just walk through those. First, you'll wanna register for an account on our website. If you've already bought something from us on our website before, then this part's already taken care of. Second, you'll want to send a copy of your credentials or some reasonable verification of affiliation to customer service at factionfirearms.com. We get a lot of emails where people are like, hey, will this count, will this ID count, will this VA card count? Chances are yes, a lot of them will count, but make sure you attach an image or a copy of that verification to the email before you even ask customer service. That way they can expedite the process for you. As soon as the account has been created or updated, we will send you an email letting you know that you're ready to go. The discount will be available anytime online when you go to your shopping cart. If you have any more questions, please email customer service at faxandfirearms.com. Hi, and welcome to the Fax and Blog and Podcast.